0: Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: Are you struggling to close deals? Cold Outreach is wasting the time of both the buyer and seller at every stage, especially when sellers are using shallow and outdated data. Your organization can overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights. That is linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash trial and get started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass.
0: audible brings these stories to life like never before and as a member you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog new members can try audible free for 30 days visit audible.com wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500500 500. that's audible.com wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500500
2: 500. after investing billions to light up our network t-mobile is America's largest 5g network
0: Plus, right now, you can switch,
3: keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America.
2: Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported. 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.
0: Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom
1: This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at ClearMe.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide.
3: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. As the world continues to open up for travelers, I sat down with Roger Dow, the president and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association, for an update on global policy and what's really happening around the globe. With Julia Simpson, the CEO and president of the World Travel and Tourism Council, to crunch some real numbers and assess the financial and psychological damage to the travel industry, not to mention to us. And what about the impact on airlines and countries? I'm speaking with the CEO of Air Portugal, Christine Widner, as well as the Secretary of State for Tourism of Portugal, Rita Marquez. A lot of necessary ground to cover to help us navigate this brave new world. First up, Roger Dow. Temp check.
0: Time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply.
3: Roger, welcome back. So I guess the question then becomes, where do we go from here? Because it's one thing to say the doors are open. It's one thing to say that people can go. But there are the logistics involved. You have airlines that, you know, flooded the zone with with, with routes, many of which didn't work right? They've got to reposition. You have airlines that have trouble staffing their their flights with with pilots and flight attendants. You have cities that may have hotel capacity, but they don't have hotel staff. Uh, You have tour operators that want to take you on safari, but they don't have enough folks to drive the Jeeps. So how fast can the recovery recover,
2: I suppose? I think it's going to be a real challenge because there's so much pent-up demand. These people have been cooped up in their houses and their countries and they're going to want to travel. And I think it's going to be one of the biggest challenges the industry's ever faced of how do we have enough people to take care of them? How do we have flexibility? And this is going to be the challenge. And people are going to say, why can't I sit in that empty table in the restaurant? And the restaurant will say, because I have no one to serve at that table.
3: I know. I've been in hotels that had zero housekeeping staff. I've had hotels where there was one woman who worked two and a half shifts at the restaurant, the world's longest wait for a cheeseburger, I get it. No, but it was, it was terrible, I felt, I felt sorry. Uh, so you have that as an example. But then there's also reciprocity. Let's go back two or three months when the European Union opens up to US travelers, but the US doesn't open up to them. And then certain countries in the European Union go, okay, well, you wanna play that game. Now we're gonna say, even if you're vaccinated, you gotta quarantine for 10 days. Or in the case of Sweden saying, even if you're vaccinated, you can't even come. What's going to happen there?
2: I think it's going to be one of those games back and forth. And uh, what you do, my folks, will do to yours, and I I think you're exactly right. Uh, And people are going to do that. Uh, We're also going to see the uh, over-tourism rear its head. The people have gotten used to, sadly say, of not having all the visitors in their town, and they kind of like it. They can get in the local restaurant, and now when they can't get in the restaurant, they're going to start complaining about the tourists.
3: You can't keep everybody happy, it's, a, it's as simple as that. It's a double-edged sword of economy and lifestyle,
2: mm-hmm. right? No question about it. I
3: mean, look, we have Venice already on the verge of putting turnstiles in St. Mark's Square. They're already gonna start charging an entrance fee into Venice if you're not staying at a hotel starting next year, anywhere from three pounds to 11 pounds a person. That's not gonna go over very well. Uh, you have Venice banning cruise ships from the lagoon, right? And, and everybody says, we don't wanna become another Venice. And Venice says, we don't wanna become another Barcelona. Well, here we are in Portugal. Portugal had a banner year in 2019. And I happen to think they took a lot of things for granted because they thought it was going to happen in 2020. And it didn't. Now we're moving into 2021. Where does reciprocity fit in there? Because they're now all
2: competing for the same market. There's no question about it. You know, but one of the things that came out of the uh, pandemic is with domestic travelers is they found new places. People are looking for the outdoors. People had never thought of going to a national park, never thought of going to Moab in Utah and all these places. And a lot of places that were off the beaten path have now been discovered. And I think that's, that's good for the travel industry.
3: And then what does it mean in terms of airfares? I'll give you an example. Two weeks ago, before this announcement was made, my airfare, I'm going to go domestic and then international. My domestic airfare from Dallas one way to LaGuardia on American Airlines on a usually heavily traveled business travel flight was $48.20. My airfare from Los Angeles, excuse me, from, from JFK to Los Angeles a week later on Delta was $68.20. The cab fare from Manhattan to JFK was $72.00. Uh, Then you had the international flights, and that's where things started to change. Because there were about 90 different city pairs between the U.S. and Europe, where LAX to Madrid or or New York to Finland, all of them were under $340 round trip. Well, here we are today. Those fares are not those fares anymore. Because once that door was opened... Now those air fares are like L.A. to London, which was like three hundred and forty round trip, is now sixteen hundred dollars in coach, right? Uh, uh, Dallas to Madrid is up to two thousand dollars. Who's
2: paying those fares? How many times have I been on your show during the pandemic and said, smart people, book now. You're never going to see these rates again. And what you predicted is now coming true. It's going to be tough for people to find. And the other thing is, I had one flight that uh, my assistant put me on a later flight than I wanted. I said, well, there's an earlier flight. The flight she put me on was $240. The earlier flight was $1,340. Same city pair, but the earlier flight... And well, I, I'm going to say know, something that made now. no sense. Well,
3: I'll tell you why it makes no sense, because it gets into the individual inventory in different buckets at different online travel agencies. If you're going to make your reservation online and you see a little tag on that fare saying only three seats left— that's a lie. There's only three seats left in the inventory that they were given, their allocation from the airline. Why wouldn't you pick up the phone and call the airline directly? I know people are—they've lost the art of the conversation, but that's where I found my forty-eight-dollar fare. It wasn't online, and not only that, when I went back online, there was one forty-eight-dollar fare, and the next fare jumped to nine hundred dollars for reasons that no one can understand. It's based on the allocation that they've been given, not the actual number of really available seats that the airline is holding at any one time.
2: And when you get that person on the call from the airlines, if you're nice and you ask them, I'd like to go here, when is the best fare? And they'll come up with a fare that you wouldn't even see on the internet because the date you're looking at, maybe a day later, it's half price.
3: Well, I'm going to tell you my old old, uh, MO, which still works today, When you call the airline and you say, let's say, I want to go from, I'll give you the example, Dallas to New York. They're going to say, when do you want to travel? Don't answer that question. Instead, say, can you look on your screen and tell me, scroll through all the fares, what's the lowest fare you've got, period? And they'll go, oh, it's $48. Okay, great. What are the restrictions? It can only be on a Wednesday at 2 in the morning. Your middle name has to be Murray. You'll go, okay, I'll do it. I'll, go, I'll change my name. I'll, I'll get a snowmobile. Whatever you need mm-hmm. to get that fare. So you back into the fare without volunteering where you want to go. Well, all of a sudden, you get stepped up to a
2: higher fare. No question about it. Once you tell them the date you're going, you're going to get that fare, and you're not going to hear about the others.
3: So as long as you can be flexible things are going to be okay. But you have to still be flexible quickly because remember, the airlines overseas have been operating essentially on a one-way basis. U.S. passengers going overseas, nobody coming back to fill a lot of those seats. And as a result, those airfares had to drop or they were flying a lot of cargo. Right now, they're not flying a lot of cargo. You are the cargo and the foreign travelers are the cargo. That means the airfares have nowhere to go but up make those bookings
2: now, think 333
3: days out, or 330 days out actually, and at least
2: protect yourself. I totally agree, Uh, book now and book far out. My thanks to Roger. When it comes to lobbying for change and then monitoring
3: policy in arguably the largest industry in the world, travel and tourism, one group is at the forefront, the World Travel and Tourism Council, and the person leading this organization, Julia Simpson, knows the economic and political impact of the business. The numbers are, to say the least, staggering, both in terms of loss and, perhaps some good news, promise. Julia,
4: welcome. Peter, welcome. Lovely being with you. So here's the real question. I mean,
3: if you take a look at the numbers, right, it's travel and tourism, the largest industry in the world, one out of every 10 jobs before the pandemic, one out of every five new jobs. On a global average, maybe 11% of global GDP, but there are some countries that are up to 40. I mean, we're talking not just tourism-dependent, we're talking tourism-driven economies. When you think about all that, we have some real issues here as the world tries to come to grips with coming back to travel as people begin to emerge from COVID-19.
4: You're absolutely right, Peter. I don't think people always understand how valuable travel and tourism is to our economy and jobs. I mean, globally, we've probably lost 162 million jobs. Um, and it's how, there's, how we're going to get those jobs back. Uh, as you quite rightly said, we're talking about a $10 trillion global business pre-pandemic, and we've seen 50% of that, more or less, wiped off the off the, off the face of global wealth. Um, you know, So in some countries, this is really serious. It's about putting bread on the table. Literally. Literally.
3: I mean, if you take a look at some countries, and Africa being, uh, I mean, continents, in fact, being a good example... Egypt being part of that as well. You can literally follow the money. You can connect the dots to realize that if Mrs. Jones from Cleveland doesn't show up, eight
4: families don't eat. Exactly. I mean, at the World Travel and Tourism Council, we represent something like over 200 of the really top companies in travel and tourism. But we also represent the 80% that are small businesses, often family-run businesses, uh, that, you know, are really being impacted by this. You've also got to remember that travel and tourism, over 50% of the people that work in the industry are women. Um, They come from ethnic minorities. They are often first jobs. Uh, This is really 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 hit them hard. So how do you get around it
3: right now? Because wherever I've been going over the last five months, it's not new. I'm in hotels that aren't staffed. I'm in hotels and some hotels had no housekeeping whatsoever, no restaurants open, no other essential services. And yet the hotels were desperate to stay open. And it's this double edged sword of how do you keep a hotel open when you can't provide the
4: service? exactly it's been a real challenge i think if you're traveling around europe now and the uk you will see things are open i mean obviously uk europe we've got sort of around 80 percent of adults have been vac- double vaccinated so you are seeing it but it's it's a very varied picture around the world if you're going to australia new zealand these economies are still effectively got the close sign outside their down. door and i think really probably the us is somewhere in between so you know what we are WTTC have been saying we've been calling on governments we understand that they've been focused very very internally inside their borders but they've got to put their eyes up now and look in internationally and try and connect the world again I mean so for example I'm an American citizen I can come to the United Kingdom you're a UK citizen you can't come back to America Exactly. And if you look at that on health grounds, it's kind of illogical, isn't it, Peter? Because if you travel from the US and you go around the UK completely free and you go home, how does that make you any less of a risk than if a double vaccinated UK citizen came to your wonderful shores?
3: Okay, so now you're giving me the logical argument. What happened to logic?
4: Well, you know, I think where there's fear there's logic often goes out the window and I also think when you're talking businesses are very agile businesses and travel and tourism have really responded agilely to this but governments by their very nature tend to be a little bit less agile and they've tied us up in a lot of red tape Uh, Because there's the the real pent-up demand for travel. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, people were genuinely fearful. But I think now there's a real pent-up demand. Travel and connecting with people is in our DNA. Um, And we've got to get back to doing this. And while we're thinking about it, maybe from a leisure aspect, you've got to remember the impact on business. uh, Because business, particularly that transatlantic travel corridor, it is the biggest business. It's the richest travel seam in the world and it's currently almost closed.
3: All right, so now I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears to, to an issue that was with us before the pandemic and you would think that during the pandemic, as with so many other businesses, people would have had a chance to rethink, reset, re, re, reprioritize, and that is first and last impressions make a deal here, right? The, the first impression you have of a country when you when you enter the first or the last impression you have when you leave we are seeing immigration lines at border patrol at border crossings in the uk at the airports uh, in portugal in so many other countries five six seven hours to get in five six seven hours to get out this is not a news bullet and this was going on before the pandemic what happened to governments understanding that there is a true connection between your your border crossing guys, your immigration and customs
4: and the country itself in terms of the tourism experience. You're completely right. I sometimes think though you need to break something to to realize how you need to fix it. I just traveled back from Portugal. I was very lucky. I you know, coming back to the UK, I came through quite swiftly. A lot of the checks were done in Portugal before I boarded my plane. But where I think this needs to go is into contactless travel. If, Peter, you and I get on a bus or we get on, uh, we call them tube trains here in London, the metro, you know, I just have a contactless QR code on my phone. I don't even have to touch anything. I don't have to exchange any money. And for international travel, this will be the way forward. Clearly, you have to have the proper safety checks of and the security checks, but there's no reason and that can't be digitalized, and I take my hat off to the US because they had got the, got the air, airports in the US had become much more digital in the old days. You used to queue for a long time, so we don't want to go back to the old days. We're heading forward, and I am sure that there will be a contactless digital solution that will, if you like, be the phoenix that rises from these ashes. Well, part
3: of that solution, I hope, will be something called pre clearance. Because it's been around since 1952, if you're flying back to the US from the Bahamas, or from uh, Bermuda, or from Ireland, or from Canada, and many other countries, you clear US Customs and Border Protection in the country where you're leaving from. So that after an 11-hour flight, you're not on line for three hours, you've already been cleared, they already know you're on the plane, you've already passed customs, you just get your bags and go home. Or if you're connecting flights, you just go to your next flight. It's so simple. The two places I wish they would do it is Heathrow and Charles de Gaulle. I mean, that would be my lobbying efforts to do pre clearance in those countries because it would make a huge difference.
4: I think pre clearance is a great idea as long as it's done digitally. What you don't want to do is swap the queues getting into the US for great big pile up of people in airports in Charles de Gaulle and Heathrow. So as long as you can do it smartly, I think pre clearance is the way ahead.
3: What's your biggest challenge now coming into WTTC? You're the the new CEO.
4: Thank you, Peter. Well, the biggest challenge is to really get us flying again and get us connecting internationally. I'd love to be able to say that this pandemic is over. Um, There is massive pent-up demand, But as I was saying, there are parts of the world that are still closed. So we need to connect people. We need to connect them smartly. And why do we want to do that? Because this isn't just about connecting people and businesses and families that have been torn apart, not seen each other for two years. It is also about the economy, stupid. You know, these mean real jobs to real people. And governments have stepped forward and they brought in things like furlough schemes. But those inevitably are going to have to come to an end. One of the big challenges for the industry is actually going to be uh, man and woman power. You know, a manpower because we're not sure we've necessarily got enough people that have left the industry that will be able to come back. So that is a challenge, but I think it's a short term challenge challenge Um, and I'm very confident that the industry will you know step up and be able to embrace all the people that are flying around again and Peter it's great news now that the US has actually opened up to the UK and Europe it was illogical before because we had the US uh, you were a US citizen you could travel freely maybe to the Caribbean and Mexico which I think is absolutely fantastic but you couldn't the Brits and people in Europe couldn't travel back the other way, even if they had like 80% vaccinated. I think the the, the brave and correct step that uh, your president, uh, Mr. Biden has taken is great news, chapeau to him. My thanks
3: to Julia. Perhaps one of the best case studies of how a country and an airline adjusted to COVID-19 is Portugal, where the economy is not just tourism driven, but tourism dependent. And let's not forget, in 2019, Portugal was the hot destination for travelers, enjoying unprecedented growth, and then came COVID-19. And without airlift, a country like Portugal can easily fail. Christine Widner is the CEO of Air Portugal and talks about the lessons learned and then applied. Christine, thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for welcoming me today.
3: You know, you have such a fascinating background. I mean, you started in the maintenance department at Air France on the Concorde.
5: Yes. uh, And that was a high-maintenance airplane. (laughs) It was, but I'm very lucky. I think that having started a career already with a passion for the industry and starting on an aircraft uh, like this one was definitely for me a a real pleasure and challenge, as you said. But um, after this experience, that was it. (laughs) And then you, you joined the executive ranks. Yes, and uh, it was uh, also an experience uh, between maintenance IT and then uh, commercial. So, and all these experiences uh, prepared me for the executive functions because I had the opportunity to work in a number of different departments, very complex industry.
3: In Air France, and then KLM, and then Flybe, and before that, City Jet. Jet, and now TAP. TAP, Lisbon Portugal. <laughs> and TAP, one of the legacy European carriers, one of the legacy European flag carriers. I remember when TAP didn't have the range to get to Lisbon and would stop in the Azores for fuel. Uh, that was in the 50s and the 60s. And, and they were flying, I remember TWA at the same time, they were flying Constellations. Now you're flying state-of-the-art advanced planes like the A321neo.
5: Yes and we are now even you know flying with narrow bodies from Lisbon with our A21LR to New York so uh that uh, something we are very proud of uh, because it's a very modern aircraft, very fuel efficient, but also very uh, good, uh, you know, aircraft for the crisis we are all going through because now bodies are more flexible than uh, wide bodies. So uh, yes, uh, a lot of things that have changed, new technologies, and uh, and we are flying these new generations.
3: Well, you mentioned the crisis, so now that you've opened the door, let's talk about the crisis. Um, Airlines, you know, it's the old, you know, Freddie Laker line, which then Richard Branson co opted, which is if you want to become a millionaire, start with a billion dollars and open an airline, you'll become a millionaire. It's a very volatile business in terms of financially prior to the pandemic.
5: Yes, it was already a very volatile uh, industry, and the pandemic, uh, you know, has been very, uh, you know, it was a really uh, deep crisis of the industry uh, on a global basis. Um, 9-11 was a a significant crisis, SARS was also also another one but compared to this crisis nothing could be compared. Because this is global. It's global, Uh, the financial impact is uh, definitely uh, massive and the tap has been hurt uh, like a number of airlines and we are still trying to recover.
3: In America, if you take a look at the business model of the legacy carriers, American, United, Delta, they were built really on business travel selling that front cabin at a premium price, and then everything in the back was nice and incremental, but if you couldn't sell the front of the cabin, you could have people sitting on the wings in coach, and you weren't making a lot of money. Uh, We've seen what's happened now, as travel's coming back, it's being led by the leisure sector, not by the business sector. And prices have come down, they haven't gone up. I mean, a price, right now, if you wanna fly round trip from Los Angeles to Madrid, it's $324. That's unheard of, right? I was on a flight the other day where the cab ride to the airport was more expensive than the flight. At a certain point, you reach a point of diminishing returns until you can turn things around. Uh, Are we at a point, and I'm not talking about TAP, as I'm talking about the airline industry, where we define a successful airline by which can lose money longer?
5: I don't think so, because that would not be sustainable. (laughs) Uh, I think that... um, We have first to restore the demand, Uh, and today our customers are still, you know, not sure they want to travel. Um, They don't want to travel the same way they were traveling before. They don't want to travel as many times as they were traveling before. And uh, it's not only a question of price. I think the pandemic has been changing a lot of behaviors, uh, expectations of our customers. Give me an example. Well, let's say uh, digital and the way they want to uh, be in contact with with airlines. Uh, Before the pandemic already, uh, our customer wanted to do most of transaction online uh, but uh, all the servicing you know uh, should be done online and during the pandemic because also of uh, all the contactless development uh, we had to uh, invest more we had to be uh, to develop more innovation to develop all this um, digitalization of the experience that's one side. On the other side, they still want to keep in contact uh, when they it's uh, going talk wrong. To you. They Absolutely. Talk to <laughs> you. So we have seen a uh, uh, quite significant increase in number of calls uh, that uh, most of the airlines have been struggling to manage. And that is causing also some delays in answer. And we're still rebuilding it because uh, calls are still there. So because when you have a doubt or you feel insecure in the way uh, you will travel, you want to have information online, but uh, quite a number of customers wants to be in contact with a human being. They want to have their hand held. Yes, they want, and it's absolutely understandable, but uh, uh, I think it's a mix of both. Uh, a number of things could be dealt online, but a number of things uh, will, will be and will have to be better handled uh, with human beings.
3: You know, one of the definitions of great service is not when you deliver the service, but when something goes wrong, how you recover. So many of the online travel agencies During the pandemic did not recover well because they had no staff to talk to people and people lost faith and what we what we saw almost coming full circle was the rise in dependency on travel agents because they could have a conversation with the travel agent they could advocate for them they could figure out plan a and plan b and plan c that you couldn't do online and so we're seeing a resurgence of popularity not only of travel agents but of customer behavior as you say where 67% of, of, of passengers, at least in the United States, are saying they'd feel more comfortable talking to a travel agent than going online, which is not the model that anybody else is
5: following. I think it's unpredictable, but also it's a way to test how far we can go with a model or another. And I think the right balance between digitalization and uh, uh, human contacts and crisis have always uh, put in more emphasis on the human contacts and that's what we are mean. Maybe it will be a more human experience than before and that's good because I think that uh, travel has to remain uh, an amazing experience. Um, this crisis proved to us that Customer experience, customer confidence is important. I think uh, as an industry, some airlines did better than others. I joined Type a few months ago, and we are still rebuilding this customer experience. And um, I think we need to invest more in the future and what the team is doing now.
3: What we, th- what we saw in the United States is that as airlines started to come back online and people started to travel domestically, they doubled and tripled down on their routes. They were They were planning to go places that were never on their route maps before. Any place that was adjacent to a national park suddenly got air service, right? Everybody wanted to go to an outdoor place where they could breathe. So all of a sudden, overnight, you had seven or eight airlines announcing service to Bozeman, Montana. It was like, what is going on with Bozeman, Montana? Uh, And I understand that. But now if you have a situation where you're flooding Bozeman, Montana with 200,000 seats a month, and there are only 2,000 hotel rooms in all of Bozeman, you've got a problem, right? Right? And, and probably what we're going to start seeing in the next couple of weeks and months ahead is service leaving Bozeman because it can't be supported. And your route system at TAP, you know, you used, used to have a much more robust system. You used to fly to Asia, you, Africa. Um, where are you now adjusting to meet that passenger demand for wide open spaces and places where they can feel safe?
5: Um, our uh, core network is uh, flying, uh, you know, through a hub uh, uh, of Lisbon uh, to North America, South America and uh, uh, Africa. That are uh, three uh, long distance uh, destinations. We also fly um, uh, and connect Portugal mainland to the islands such as Madeira and Azores. But... Uh, we have three decisions. I must say that Africa has been quite, uh, you know, stable and less volatile than the two other areas of the world. South America has been challenging. And for us, we are speaking Brazil. many of Brazil, Brazil. And Brazil has a quite amazing destination. Now we see um, a recovery in Brazil because uh, uh, more and more countries are opening the border. Brazil, North America is still a challenge for us because the borders are not uh, well, it's open. a one-way
3: situation exactly. right Exactly.
5: So that's a challenge. And we How hope do you that fight that? How do you fix that? We try to be flexible, and that's what all airlines are doing. You, uh, you are, you have to be agile on the capacity, the frequency, so you keep the destination. Let me guess:
3: passengers one way, cargo the other.
5: <laughs> <laughs> we have cargo, absolutely, uh, and uh, we also find um, other destinations that are open.
0: Get Who Gets You on eHarmony. Sign up today.
3: You mentioned the Azores, and I want to do a shout out to those guys. The nine westernmost islands in Europe. What a secret, hidden destination. It's frozen in time. I love it. I can't get enough of it. If you haven't been there, I mean, you need to go. Um, and to give you an idea of how special the Azores are, uh, I'll just give you one example. And it's going to come as a surprise to most of you. They still have bullfights there, but they're not really bullfights. They're sort of like bull chases. And the bull doesn't die. It's, it's the most interesting spectator sport I've seen in a long time because the bull does run after people. And you better be behind the barrier, but it's, and it moves from village to village to village. You never know. You have to ask what villages are going to be in today. And all of a sudden the truck pulls up and here comes the bull. It's, but the food, the fish, unbelievable. And I, I, I have to give you an, a, a shout out for that because as people are looking for destinations with social distancing baked in, with, with, with an affordable destination, I mean, I, you, you wouldn't, you, you couldn't do better than, than the Azores.
5: Yes, it's a wonderful destination and I think that uh, uh, when you look at this destination, if you talk about wild spaces, being able to do like, uh, you know, trail or hikes, it's amazing. And there are a lot of destinations like that in Portugal. So uh, to promote the destination, (laughs) thank you so much. But uh, I was in Madeira last weekend. We had a wonderful time because you can absolutely have these wild spaces, amazing food and Although I must tell
3: you, (laughs) if you're landing in Madeira, the pilots who fly to Madeira are a special breed because it's a little windy on the landing. I'm telling you, the the landings and takeoffs in Madeira, that's the e-ticket ride at Disneyland. I'm telling you.
5: Yes, but as you know, we have... uh, I would say, our procedures, our new aircraft. And I think that it's a special landing, but with special procedure with captain-only landing in, in, uh, in Madeira. You see,
3: I call it a wild landing, and Christine called it a special landing. <laughs> I like that. Okay, good. But now let's talk about some other routes and things that you've done in the past. Because prior to your arrival at TAP, there was a time where if you flew to Lisbon, you had 45 other destinations you could tag on in your routing for a nominal amount of money. What a great idea that was! Are you still doing that?
5: Now what we uh, put in place is working very well. Is uh, stopover so uh, that's what I'm talking about, right? And we do that uh, up to five days today, meaning that if you uh, fly through Lisbon, you can spend a few days in Lisbon, and it's included in, uh, in your connecting uh, uh, itinerary. So, and uh, it's giving the opportunity, for instance, for uh, tourists coming from. Uh, America to uh, do a fantastic stop in Lisbon. They could even go uh, when in Lisbon either to Azores or to Madeira there and then go. fly in other places in Europe. So that's uh, and that's all included in one ticket.
3: Now I have an admission to make. I'm somewhat of an addict when it comes to this. Do you know why I stop in Lisbon? For one thing chocolate mousse at Pop Sorda. <laughs> I'm sorry, I do. For those of you who have ever had chocolate mousse at a restaurant, you know that you know how how disappointing it is when they serve you the chocolate mousse in this little baby champagne glass, the little baby spoon. That is not the case at this restaurant. Mm-hmm. You walk in, and they have great seafood, but you're there for the dessert. And you only order chocolate mousse. That's the only thing I'm going to allow you to order. And you go there, and you order the chocolate mousse, and you're sitting there waiting for this little champagne glass, and all of a sudden there's a tap on your shoulder, and there's a waiter standing there with a huge bowl and a ladle the size of, like, Texas, and just they just pour it's like you need to go home in a stretcher that's true you'll be taking a long nap but the point is I, I would never go to Lisbon without doing that that's that's my stop sorry
5: Yes, Portuguese hospitality, quality of the food, quality of the wine. I think that um, that's what uh, our customers are discovering the first time they're in Portugal, and that's why also they are coming back. And there are many other traditions that are the custard art, so what you can, you know, taste in Portugal, nowhere, nowhere else in the world. So I've been, uh, it's very dangerous for your diet, to be honest. Uh, but yes, but uh, it's a wonderful country.
3: And I'm going to tell you this as a compliment. Portugal, to me, is the kingdom of a dead empire. And if you ask most Portuguese what's going on, the tendency over the last couple of years was to talk about Vasco da Gama. That's about it. It's cool. It's honest. It's open. It's affordable. And because of a route network that you have, you can go to a lot of places, including Africa.
5: Absolutely. And... Um... We are trying to welcome also a customer on board with exactly the same kind of hospitality. We say with our arms open, uh, because it's also the Portuguese tradition to be very friendly. Um, they also are, you know, uh, everywhere in the world. So there is a huge diaspora of uh, oh, Portuguese everywhere in the world. So there's also this tradition of welcoming people coming you from You go to Boston, Portuguese. Portugues. You go to
3: Hawaii, Portuguese. Because you were the fisherman.
5: Absol- and the navigators, and yeah. uh, you know, a lot of discovery thing to uh, the Portuguese, uh, you know, uh, uh, explorers. So this tradition and uh, also this ambition to welcome culture from everywhere in the world is still there. And uh, I'm very amazed to see our Portuguese in my organization, but also in the country, have kept uh, kept this in their DNA. So, and that's also what is uh, with this country one one of the reasons why it's one of the best country to travel to. Either for leisure, of course, for any kind of leisure, but also from businesses, more and more um, corporations and organizations are deciding with remote work and also a, a fantastic condition to move their organization to Portugal because it's a fantastic can do that place. Absolutely. Okay,
3: I, I won't let you go with asking one question. The next time I get on a TAP flight, will you promise me that dessert will be chocolate mousse?
5: I can try. <laughs> <laughs>
3: My thanks to Christine. Portugal is also a role model for government policy in the COVID era, but as Rita Marquez, Portugal's secretary of state for tourism argues, she had to make sure the country stayed focused on all the sustainability and environmental impact issues that confronted it before the pandemic in order to emerge from it. Thank you for joining me.
6: Thank you for having me, Peter.
3: You know, Portugal to me right now is a role model of how to behave in in COVID. Uh, You were one of the first countries to open Uh, you were one of the first countries to stay open. Um, And along with Greece, you sort of led the way for the other European Union countries to follow. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did you do that? I mean, because remember, you're dealing with COVID-19 concerns, fears, Delta variant, vaccination levels, all those things that go into a decision
6: absolutely it and it was you know a hard a very hard decision um, so we had the presidency back the presidency of the european council back in january this year so we had that for 6 months till june and um, we want to we wanted to lead by example basically and and so we want to uh, we thought that you know we took could be a good idea uh, to materialize uh, the certificate the european certificate for covid so we try very much to be focused on basically that basically
3: the vaccine passport
6: correct basically the basic the, the fa- but at the time there was no uh, many vaccines so <laughs> we were taking care of that issue but at the same time very much eager to uh to bring vaccines to europe and to to have the vaccination rollout as smooth as possible so uh, going back to the question we wanted a uh, Portugal to be um, in their leadership, so basically on this, together with Greece, together with Spain, all those countries that depend on tourism. We do have a lot of workers in this sector, and so we fight back very severely in order to have this uh, done by the end of June, so that's when we leave the presidency. We left the presidency.
3: It's interesting to note that in 2019, you had a record year. Portugal was the hot destination, no doubt about it. Uh, And sometimes it's easy to take tourism for granted, or to just think it's going to continue and then all of a sudden here comes the pandemic and the bottom falls out that I mean that was a big hit
6: yeah you know the world stopped uh, basically it was not only tourism all of us stopped basically we were confined at our homes and um, and, and so we we um, we yeah it we, it was it's still huge a huge impact on the sector but let me go back because um, previous to the numbers the great numbers to, we had back in 2019 because as you said we had a record here, we had had already committed ourselves to a new agenda for tourism so uh, in 2017 we launched the strategic plan for tourism here in Portugal it was a private and public homework so basically it was you know all the peers all the leaders that somehow were related to the industry that commit themselves to to a new standard of tourism. And I, you know, with the pandemic, um, uh, this pandemic alert us or uh, showed us that this plan is really important. The priorities that we set at that plan were, are really important. And we need to guarantee that we have tourism all year round. That's the first objective. The
3: second one. But but that's interesting you say that because I remember talking to your counterpart in Greece a couple of years ago. And she was saying that they thought that their solution was to just extend the season, Mm -hmm. to spread out the numbers, because everybody was talking about over-tourism. So that was already one thing that was already in play. But it didn't take into, into account... The fact that nobody was coming at one point.
6: No, yeah, for sure, yeah. But uh, we, we have basically three uh, objectives. So that was one of them. So have tourism all year round. But there are another other objectives: is to have tourism all over the the all over Portugal, not only in the cities but in the rural areas. And the pandemic showed that if we have installed capacity, for instance, in the rural areas, we are able to deliver uh, tourism, a type of tourism that people seek. Uh, after the pandemic, you know, freedom, Calm places. They want to yeah, of course. Uh, the mindset has changed a lot of mindfulness. Also, you know, to, to for us to conclude what is our role in this planet. How can we contribute to the future generations? And so this was the second objective. And the third one was to diversify our markets and to guarantee, uh, you know, um, uh, an excellent service, always you know value added service. And this was our last objective. So altogether, these three objectives uh, continue to be very adequate, very useful. Um, and so we'll uh, come back alive and kicking for sure after this pandemic.
3: When you talk about the mindset has changed, give me an example of how passenger or traveler behavior has changed in the wake of the pandemic. What are they demanding now? What are they expecting now?
6: You know, um, they, they are very attentive to sanitary rules, that's for sure. But most of all, uh, they are very uh, determined in finding a nice accommodation that lets them breathe basically you know so don't annoy so much the customer let them uh, you know uh, enjoy the place not interrupt interrupting him or her several times uh, giving her him or her a good service but not very how can i say very active service always you know so they like to be pampered but in a kind of passive way you know what i mean um, and this is kind of you know, a consequence of our strategy and of course the pandemic. Uh, altogether, I think you know, we are moving to this focus on uh, being more social-minded, uh, uh, environmental-minded and, um, and, and that's the, the new tourism, I would say, the new world also.
3: Of course, many of your counterparts in many other countries of the world traditionally depended, it was a numbers game. How many visitors per year? What was their average stay? What was their average spend? That's got to be thrown out the window now.
6: Absolutely. I I, I, know, I I guess companies will immediately understand or are starting to understand that for the balance sheet, we have to have some you know, business numbers, revenues and all that. But we have to have also in the balance sheet the social impact of that company, the environmental impact of that company. Because if they don't do that, they would lose their license. They will lose their customers uh, and they will lose their investors you know so it's not only a question of client relationship it's also a question of government with government relationship because they will lose their licenses basically and also investors relations all the stakeholders so this is um, this is something that the companies, not only the companies and the customers should be very attentive at
3: of course there's always this double-edged sword because if you're an airline you want to fill every seat on the plane (laughs) right you got to get as many people on the plane as you can to get to Lisbon or the Algarve Garver, anywhere, right? And yet that sort of like flies in the face of what you're just talking about.
6: Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, uh, they they want to have profitability. I understand that. But in the long term, if you are running the marathon, you know, this is not a sprint. So if you are running the marathon, they have to be profitable economically, financially profitable, but they want to have, you know, a good relationship with investors, customers, all that, with the governments as well, with the public sector, and in order to achieve that, they have to open up their minds and increase sustainability mindset in in include the, the sustainability mindset in the business model.
3: And how successful have you been in changing the minds of those operators and those investors?
6: Um, I, we, Honestly. Wa- no, 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 I, I'm going to be, you know, straightforward in my answer. Yeah. We do have some issues, especially because as you can imagine here in Portugal, we have a lot of SMEs and for the big lot of SMEs, small and medium enterprises, Uh, So we do have, you know, a tourism sector, a lot of uh, uh, medium, small and medium companies, um, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, family-owned business. And this is really something that we need to work on because for the big names, for the big brands... They can sort of do it. Yeah, you know, it's easy to have a chief uh, happiness officer. It's easy to have a chief... I would like
3: to have a chief happiness (laughs) officer.
6: No, but a chief sustainability officer, whatever. But for a SME, for a small and medium company, it's not really the case. So here, the government has to um, to define, you know, public, uh, public policies, uh, give them kind of grants, give them fiscal incentives, trying to to instigate them. To, to adopt this new mindset in the business model and this takes time and I have to tell you it's not also uh, not only about it's not only about the, the entrepreneur or the businessman or woman it's also about the workers because now we are fighting hard to find talents in the sector so you know we do have a s- scarce uh, um, you know scarce talent in the sector and what we are figuring out is that a lot of people, when they think about the sector, they don't accept any offer. They accept the best offer, meaning that sustainability also plays in the equation. So it also is a piece you know, of the, the equation. So because people tend to accept offers from those companies that do have a chief happiness officer or a chief sustainability officer. Okay, that settles <laughs> it. I'm getting
3: a chief happiness officer. I, I have to have it. No, but in, in all seriousness, it's another challenge that you have, which you're not alone in. The United States, big problem in terms of finding the people to actually do the jobs. There's a labor shortage right now, yeah. and people aren't really coming back to work. I've been in some hotels where the housekeeping staff was zero. I've been in some hotels that had no restaurant. I've been in some hotels that basically said, housekeeping's coming once every four days, if you're lucky. That's redefining hospitality.
6: For sure, um, yes, but we still need the, the human resources. Uh, so yes, we need to, uh, to upgrade, and that's an upgrade. I think that's an upgrade because it fits with uh, the trends.
3: The pandemic allowed a huge population percentage to reassess their own lives. You know, it's, 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 I've always said that if you go to a restaurant in Portugal, or Italy, or France, the waiter there, that's not just his job, that's his profession. And it's something that maybe his father did or his brother did. It's something that he's proud to do and he does it well, right? In America, it's an out-of-work actor waiting for a movie. Mm -hmm. So when you have a pandemic hit, at least in the United States, these people may not come back, right? We talk about jobs at risk economically. How about just jobs at risk towards the definition of terms of what they want to do for a living? Here, you have an economic impact to get them back. There's a difference because they are professionals here. So what's, how do you deal with that challenge? How do you incentivize people in the wake of the pandemic to come back to work?
6: We have to work in several dimensions so first of all we have to uh, train the entrepreneurs the businessmen women alerting them to the new uh, recruitment policies for instance how can you value the professionals that work in the area for instance how can you pay more to them as well because you know it's also about earnings right, at but the then end the of the day right
3: sword there is once you pay more then it costs more for people to come here
6: yeah it's true but uh, you know a couple of minutes ago we were discussing about the parameters how can you evaluate business and this you know we can evaluate business on not on the number of people that you are hosting but also on the receipts that you are making right so we need to shift a little bit the idea we, we have a limit for sure for the number of guests that you are able to to to, uh, to host but going back to the question um, I think we have to uh, involve of course the entrepreneurs the businessmen the management, the management. but we also have to open up our open up the possibility to integrate migrants, for instance, and that has been a solution for a while here in Portugal.
3: It's what built America. Yeah,
6: yeah, we we know, and that's what was built Portugal. In fact, we were explorers, so we were you know we are a, a country that has always been open to others, and tourism and uh, and migration are pretty much uh, two globalization phenomena, right? They are much they are very much related, and if we incentivate, to promote, foster here in Portugal, we cannot abandon the possibility to also to instigate and foster and nurture and pamper migration. So for instance, what we've been doing in our schools, in our uh, Turismo de Portugal schools, our National Tourism Board, we have been organizing several specific programs for refugees, for instance, migrants, helping them to be integrated into society, but not losing their values, their authenticity, their identity. And, um, and the balance has been amazing. So uh, we are quite happy with With that experience, and we can will continue for sure to work on that dimension.
3: Well, perhaps America can learn from you.
6: Who knows? We can also learn with Americans for sure. I think you know it's a take and give, also.
3: Of course, back in February of 2020, the word that was on everybody's agenda was over tourism. We've seen now, as we've come out of the pandemic a little bit, what's happened in Venice, banning the the, the cruise ships from the uh, from the lagoon, putting in everything short of a turnstile in St. Mark's Square. Have you gotten to that point in Portugal yet?
6: Um, that's a very tricky question. Um, we, we don't want to get to that point, um, but we need to be flexible enough to react if we are ner- ready, you know, if we are pretty much close to that point. And uh, Venice case is, um, needs to be uh, you know um, an alert. To all other countries, and we ha- we have that issue with Barcelona, for instance. Everybody um, says
3: they don't want to become another Barcelona, I, I, I know. and then Barcelona says they don't want to become but, another Venice.
6: That's correct, and we don't want to become another Venice and Barcelona. So, uh, we have been very attentive to that situation. We need to avoid that situation here in Portugal, but I'm not going to hide that it might be it might happen in Lisbon spe- specifically. Um, of course, we can bring technology on. We haven't talked about technology, but we also have, you know, been working very much on innovation and technology how can you manage flow of people you know entering the port for instance how can you advise them not to go to that restaurant if it's packed in order to move to another restaurant so we do have um, 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 we we are assuming a lot of commuting uh, commitment on innovation we do have an agenda on innovation and basically we want to to introduce innovation not because um, just just because yes it's good it's sexy it's because we need that in order to provide a seamless experience also, a seamless travel experience and at the end of the day to better manage locals uh, because it's impossible to travel in Lisbon if you are not happy to live in Lisbon, right? And so locals are really one of the key shareholders that we have to address as well.
3: True. I mean, Lisbon was not made for cars <laughs> or, or big tour buses. It just wasn't built for that.
6: I, yeah, you pretty, you pretty, yeah, you have a point there.
3: You can't widen the streets there. No. Where are you going to be a year from now in terms of the numbers? Where are you going to be a year from now in terms of the quality of the experience?
6: You know, numbers um, are important but I honestly um, it's not our biggest priority. This year will be 50% of the revenues of uh, 2019 pretty much in line with what happens with other countries in Europe that rely uh, on tourism. Next year we are expecting to be 75% and 2023 will be identical, the numbers will be pretty much identical to the ones that we had back in 2019. So it will take a while. But you know, but in the
3: process of doing that, you learn while you are, while you earn. You, you, it's an it's an evolving education.
6: Exactly. So yeah, we do have these figures. We do have these goals, but we want we don't want to go back to reality of 2019. We don't want you know we want a better a better tourism.
3: My thanks to Secretary Marquez, to Christian Woodman, to Julia Simpson, and to Roger Dow. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, no passport needed, just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com
2: peter and zip
1: through busy airports nationwide.
2: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait.
0: Why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
2: Always on the
1: go. You can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews on the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Listen to CBS Mornings On The Go ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.